Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1363, air date November 21st, 2023. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for attending the MIT Students for Open Inquiries second event. Today we are honored to feature Dr. Shiva, who will be giving a presentation on an inventor's journey. Hope you've had a chance to sign in here or over here, as you can see. Some exciting stuff is going on. With that being said, as you already know, this event is being recorded, so you might become famous. What's the MSY all about? Let's see what it is all about. A, a student organization that was founded to restore free, free refreshing intellectual curiosity to MIT campus. MIT is the epicenter of science and technology of the world, and science, as always, based in science, got discovered by people questioning the status quo, by people trying to explore and interact with unorthodox or different views, trying to um, do different things from what's been established. And so, in, in the spirit, we deem it's necessary and um, to promote free ex freedom of expression and the spirit of open inquiry at MIT. And uh, we're here to transform the um, principles of the MIT Free Speech Alliance into practice. And the MIT Free Speech Alliance, MSA, is a student is a an alumni organization that um, stands for free speech, and we're here to um, promote that. Right, so building off of that, I just wanted to continue our planning called MSOI. We're specifically an organization to bring in speakers of many different views. So this includes views that you might not agree with, sometimes even we don't agree with. The point is to just bring in people that have many different backgrounds, different ideas, and really provide a platform to hear from um, the logic behind them and see um, where it comes from, as well as perhaps how it might build into our own views. And building off of that, we also have our fourth part of MSOI, which is to open MIT minds. Through meetings like this one, we can hear from members from all across the world. So last week we had purchasing an independent presidential candidate. Um, and then we also have this, of course, Dr. Shiva this week. And next week we have Steve Kirsch, which we're really looking forward to hearing about. Kirsch has made an overall purchasing in the Rommel Republican. Dr. Shiva is the independent presidential candidate. Everyone, it's great to meet you. I'm Adam Deng. I am the captain of the operation. I'm the senior studying math and AI, but I figured that in order to do my mathematics as best as possible, it's great to explore new ideas, and it's great to be leading in charge to restoring free speech on campus and to getting free to people over here. My name is Isabella. I'm a first year here at MIT. I'm studying physics as well as computer science, but I agree, just like Adam, um, having a broad view of uh, many different backgrounds outside of physics and CS is extremely important just to who I am, as well as um, better doing work in my fields. And, um, I'm Spencer, also a freshman studying management and political science. Um, I came from a biology background, and I know how, how important the like, part open inquiry and exploring different views is, especially because a lot of discoveries in science and biology got um, they, re they were realized because people were daring enough to interact with different views. We recently landed on the news for hosting Hirschstein, the Republican at MIT, and I'm sure that there will be many more after tonight. 
Just something interesting. We are getting attention. With that being said, please draw lines for the national anthem. It is our tradition. You really care at MIT, but the MFLI will do this. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight, o'er the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rockets red flare, the bombs bursting in air. Chiba, inventor of email, serial entrepreneur, he got four degrees from this great institution and the system science. He will be connected to Dr. Day, and he is also running for president of the United States. With that being said, we hand it over to Dr. Shiba. All right, let's get some technical stuff done. So, John, I just want to make sure we're streaming properly, okay? I got to switch. I have to share the window, right, John? Uh, the window is, yeah, you have to share the window. Can you see that window again? Yep. All right, thanks for bringing that. Welcome everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be back here. Many of you may um, know that I was a student here, uh, did a bunch of degrees from here, four degrees. Um, but today we're really gonna talk about an inventor's journey. When I titled this, I called it an inventor's journey. And uh, many years ago, an MIT professor said, hey Shiva, why do you have to tell the truth all the time? That's, and uh, you're gonna, we're gonna talk about that. And we're gonna talk about does MIT foster an environment where you actually are emboldened to tell the truth all the time, or are you put into a framework of conforming 
to only tell the truth when it's opportunistic for you? And that's really the question that we're going to talk about. And what I'm going to walk you through is my journey as, as an inventor, but in a much deeper sense uh, that I've always told the truth all the time and also at the right time. And you'll also hopefully get an understanding that there are people on social media today, everyone's exposing truth, right? But you have to ask, when are they exposing it? Are they doing it for views and clicks to be grifters? Are they doing it to actually change the world? It's a very fundamental difference. And are they telling the whole truth or the half truth? So we're going to talk about that. So before I go into that, John, you're going to have to move the machine over here because we're going to have to share the sound. We have a little bit of technical stuff that we're working through. So I'm going to share, I'm going to start with sharing two videos um, and then we're going to um, go into this. Let's see. So let me see if I can pull this off. We did a test. So hopefully I can do this. Um, all right. I have a question. When was the last time you licked an envelope? Remember that I just licked blue face? Ah, the olden days. You guys hear it? Electronic life is very different now. How many times have you already checked your email today? There's actually one man who's hugely He almost single-handedly made that blue-looking face extinct. Next time your fingers hit the keyboard to write a quick email, you might want to say thank you to Shiva Ayadore. Specifically, thank the 14-year-old version of him because he's credited with inventing email as a young boy in New Jersey in the late 1970s. Hi, Shiva. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mom. Glad to be here. How did email even come about? Share some of the important steps in the development of this. My parents and the invention of email in many ways are probably one of the best examples of the realization of the American dream. Born in India, Shiva lived in the slums of Bombay before his parents made the bold decision to move to the United States and give their family a new life. A new life that Shiva took full advantage of, finishing high school by 14 and enrolling in a summer program at New York University. Shiva found a job in the office of a medical college. His task was to transform the paper-centric inter-office mail system into an electronic one. And the software he developed was very much like the email we all use today. Every secretary on their desktop was a thing called the inbox. So everything we see today in every email program in the world, inbox, outbox, folders, address book, return receipt, to, from, subject, BCC, all of these elements and more all came from the inner office mail system, which was a physical system that was used in every office in the world. It was the first end user software application, which made computing accessible to ordinary people. Shiva has four degrees from MIT. He's created multiple companies, and he also happens to be married to television actress and producer Fran Drescher. When it comes to innovation, he is passionate about passing it on. I really believe that being an inventor and a scientist is not complete without also being a humanist and thinking about how we can give back to the world and change it. Thank you, Shiva. We wish you continued success. Thank you, Mo.
All right, so I want to play that one video. I want to play another one. Um, let's play this one. So in 2013, I went back to Newark, New Jersey, and, I, and we started a small foundation to recognize kids between the ages of 14 through 18 and fund them and support them. And when I did that, one of my old colleagues, where's that feedback coming from? Um, yeah, Bob Field. I think I'm, I'm probably not even going to use it, John. I don't even think I need this. Can you guys hear me all right? Yeah. All right. So I don't think we need this. Um, so Bob Field, who was one of the IT guys when I was 14, when I went back, God, 30 years later, Bob, uh, where is this coming from? That's amazing. Is there another sound source here? Feeding back through that. So. Oh, interesting. Okay. So um, let me play Bob's video. Well, could it be from this? That's feeding back into the HDMI. Huh. All right. Well, let's see. Let me just play Bob's video and then we'll figure that out. Um, so let me play Bob's video here. And I think it'll give a cancel uh, this here. So Bob Field at the time was, I think, in his 40s, and he was a um, the database guys. This is in uh, the University of Medicine and Dentistry. Let me just play Bob's video here. And so this is many years later. I went back to the university when I opened this foundation, and Bob was kind enough to, and we did this very quick video. It's not done that great, but you'll get the idea. So let me play it for you guys here. on the systems that we had available. Nowadays, computing uh, programmers, they have access to gigabytes worth of memory. And we were running systems where she had to write in 65,000 lines of code that ran into anywhere from 7 to 11 kilobytes. That's thousands, not mega, million, not giga, billion bytes of code. Manually segment the code, overlays, everything. Just from the sheer view of being able to do that with any program, it was a monumental accomplishment. Forgetting the innovativeness of what he was actually created. That was really an act of perseverance. Of course, he did it in a language that's dedicated to numbers, and he's doing a text-oriented uh, program. <laughs> it's nice to remember the past. So anyway, I think it's it. How's that? Is that better? Yeah. All right. I think it was a connection. So let me... Uh, I just wanted to give you that quick sort of preview. 
did the discussion. I hope it's a lively discussion that we have. And let me um, sort of jump back into the uh, PowerPoint that we have. Okay. Unfortunately, we weren't able to play it directly, so I had to do this sort of rigmarole here. Right, John, are we set? So do you want to do it, the screen that we talked about? Okay, good. All right. So let me uh, walk you guys through sort of the journey that I went through. Um, how many people have been to India? Anyone? Michelle has. You guys have. All right. So I grew up in, in India. I was born in India in 1963. My 60th birthday is coming up on December 2nd. You guys want to come? Uh, I'll keep an eye out, but we're probably going to have a big party. But uh, I grew up in, in India that the typical scenes in India were something like this, right? In, in Bombay, you'd see bullet carts, you'd see cars, you'd see buses, you'd see cycle rickshaws, you'd see people walking um, sometimes on their hands and feet, okay? If they were paraplegic. But, but India has transformed. Bombay is very, very different now. Uh, but the India that I grew up in uh, was this kind of India, these kind of scenes. But a quarter of my life or a third, I grew up in a very different kind of India, which was an India which was, you know, these kinds of fields in, in a village. A lot of Indians today in India don't go to the villages anymore because they think it's beneath them. Um, but I grew up also in a village. My um, grandparents, and these are sort of the scenes in the typical South Indian village, that's sort of the temple. And you'd see a lot of these sprinkled throughout India. And my grandmother was a poor village farmer. Getting um, And um, when I meant a poor village farmer, I mean a poor village farmer, okay? Uh, bare feet, she would be out in the fields uh, putting in rice or planting cotton on, on small subsistence farms. And, but that was her day job. But on the weekends, she was a village shaman. Most people know it in small villages in India, doctors, if they become doctors, uh, they don't go back to their village. So who takes care of people who are sick? It's typically women. And in the traditional villages, the women learned um, their arts um, from ancient systems of Indian medicine. There's two systems of medicine. One is called Siddha, S-I-D-D-H-A, and the other one's called Ayurveda. Anyone heard of, heard of these? Some people have, okay. Um, to the Westerner, when they hear about these systems of medicine, they typically think there's some you know, nonsense, right? Uh, or snake oil. Um, but my grandmother was a village healer and I saw her empirically on weekends, 30, 40 people would line up and she would observe their face. And today, by the way, the Media Lab is creating technologies like this and based on their face analysis, based on her face analysis, she would then predict their particular dysfunctions in their body. And the theory was that your face, or for that matter, in ancient system Indian medicine, different things reflected what was going on in your body. Uh, some people use the eye, some people use the tongue, some people use you know, uh, urine or feces. But the idea was these were diagnostic measures. And based on observing people's face, she would figure out their particular constitution, you could call it their homeostasis, and their particular dysfunction. And that differential was used to figure out a particular medicine for that person, the right medicine for the right person at the right time, which is what the NIH now says we should do in 2003, okay? But this was the ancient systems of traditional medicine. No one ever got the same treatment. Everything was particularly localized for that person, okay? Now, how did they do this? Well, um, I used to teach a, a class, a lecture series at MIT, which was one of the most popular ones. And 
we used to teach these traditional systems of medicine and combine it and we'll go through that. But if you look at those words, again, the average Western engineering student or scientist would say, what is this garbage, right? Uh, or you would say you'd poo poo with this. But this system of medicine had this concept of how the earth formed, how our nature came into existence called Purusha, uh, Prakriti, everything you see in the manifest nature, uh, sort of the energy forms of it, and then how it came into being in, in matter, and then the uh, reflection of matter in three phenomena that they call the tridoshas, Vatha, Pitta, and Kapha. And based on that understanding, each individual or everything in nature could be seen as a combination of these three forces, Vata, Pitta, and Kapha. And that affected your body. Now in the Indian systems of medicine, they weren't only looking at the physical body, but they also had the concept of chakras and energy centers, which again are not, um, some people may believe in them, but in the Western system of medicine, they're not really looked at. But anyway, nonetheless, I don't have time to go into all of this, but this was what she had learned. And based on this, she would observe people's situations and then she would prescribe uh, different modalities. Now those modalities could be herbs, it could be massage, it could be sound healing, but there's a whole range of modalities. And I saw her empirically heal people. So I was very moved by this because here's a woman with no degrees, tattoos all over her arm, chewed tobacco, you know, um, and she was the village healer. So that was a very, very interesting uh, experience I had. Now that system of Indian medicine goes back to this whole concept of these sages who wrote these formulations in sort of a poetry in a language called Tamil, which is still, um, you know, spoken today. And these still exist, the Indian government starting to convert them. Um, and the story goes that these were passed on through these yogis who you would call ancient professors, right? Rishis. So anyway, and then for an individual, you know, you'd make particular combinations. So anyway, that was one of the early experiences I was uh, exposed to as a child. The other experience, the unfortunate experience I also had was India has a caste system. Uh, most Indians in the United States are called Brahmins. You won't find a lot of low caste Indians in the United States. In fact, when I first came to MIT, there was the Indian Students Club and they would always try to find out my last name to try to figure out what caste I was. And these were the Indians who came from India. You say very different than the Indians who grew up here. And in fact, unfortunately, I would say some of the most racist people were those Indians. And, um, but for me growing up in India as a four-year-old child, you know, I remember the earliest memory was playing soccer with a friend of mine, going to his home and his mom spitting at me, calling me the equivalent of the N-word and telling me to stand outside and give me water in a different cup. Now, this is not discussed and it should be discussed. It should be. And when you discuss it, people think it's a woke issue or an anti-woke issue. And I've been on both sides of this, but it is what I was exposed to as a four-year-old kid. And it affected me because I didn't understand this. And I went to my mom and I said, what is this? And she said, oh, we're the lower caste. And when I used to go to the well to get water, they would spit on me and chase me away and call me a pig. So I realized there, you weren't born into equality, right? There was this concept of birth lottery. And so as a child, I got very moved by this and started studying why this existed. And in India, they used to have these very interesting comic books in those days that you could study different people, autobiography. So um, my grandmother also brought up the story, if you have studied any of the Hindu mythologies of Rama, the Ramayana about the story of Shiva, you know, the struggle to fight evil, all these wonderful stories. And my grandmother would tell me these stories as I lied in her lap in that village. And they were very moving stories, but ultimately it was about loyalty, fighting evil, 
and not compromising. So my heroes, I started studying, they know this guy, Bhagat Singh. You know, he actually challenged the British, not like Gandhi, who told people it's okay to get, get, you know, beat up. You know, he actually challenged the British or people like Crazy Horse or people like Che Guevara or people like Thomas Paine. These were my heroes as a child. And I studied all these people, left wing, right wing, because I was very, very interested in systems of injustice, but I was also interested in systems of medicine. You see, so it was a very interesting upbringing. Um, so in 1970, my dad first came to the United States. He was given a very interesting opportunity. My mom and my mom and my dad were quite extraordinary people. There's a picture of my mom, this dark skinned Indian woman with all these men. And she had gotten her bachelor's degree in mathematics. She ended up getting her master's. Now women weren't supposed to even get degrees in, the, in that time. Women were relegated to either being a housewife, maybe a secretary, maybe a teacher, maybe but not from the lower caste. And my dad had grown up in war-torn Burma where he didn't see a book until he was probably 11 years old. And he became an engineer and my mom became a mathematician. And in the 19, late 60s, the United States was looking for very educated people because they needed an engineering pace. So my dad came here, we had to wait a year, then we came. Well, we first settled in Patterson, New Jersey. Anyone from New Jersey? Patterson's one of the poorest cities in the United States. Um, predominantly African-American. And you have to understand that when I came here, it was the Vietnam War was still going on. You still had massive segregation in the United States and it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So this very traditional Indian family comes into uh, Patterson, New Jersey. Um, there weren't a lot of Indians here at the time, you know? And then my parents moved to a place called Clifton, which was sort of half black, half white, always public schools. Then we moved to a place called Persephone, um, and in 1979, I had the, no, I'm sorry, 1975, I had the opportunity to go back to India because my grandmother was dying. And that's when I realized the stark differences between the United States and India. In the village, you had dirt roads, you have no running water, you have no electricity. And as I was leaving, my grandparents were crying because they knew that I would go back and they had this deep love for me. And I, and I, and this, at the time I was 12 and I realized that um, I should do something with my life of significance. As you know, in those days we had the old caboose train. And I was, I was leaving my, uh, uh, it was a very emotional uh, day. And this deep part of me decided that I would use the opportunity that the United States afforded me to learn stuff, to excel, and to hopefully want to change the world. So that was a trajectory that I was on. So when I got back to the United States in 19, that year, 77, 78, I studied my butt off. I was very good at athletics too. And uh, something interesting happened. I did very well in math. And um, my mother who was working at a, at a place got this little clipping. It said, NYU invites high school students. And you may not be able to read it, but her coworker had said, Mina, my mom's name is Mina. I thought you might be interested in this. A professor called Henry Mullish, this is in 1978 when the computer would probably fill up this entire room. Um, Mullish, and this was at the Corrent Institute of Mathematical Sciences, one of the most elite uh, mathematics schools. He had decided that he had gotten a small NSF grant that he was going to select 40 students in the United States in a competitive exam, a competitive application process to come to NYU in sort of almost a military like Navy SEAL type program where you would learn six computer languages, digital circuit theory, all this kind of stuff. Now, I wasn't officially allowed to participate because it was only for people who were juniors. I was, a, I think, a 
freshman or sophomore. I applied, I got accepted, but now I had to go from New Jersey all the way to New York. So if you've been there, you have these trains that still goes there from New Jersey. It's called the PATH train. So I'd take the train. By the way, most parents are afraid to let their kids walk outside these days, okay? So my parents allowed me to go to New York by myself on this train. It's about an hour and a half train. My mom would drop me off there around 5 or 6 a.m. I'd get there, and it was an 8 a.m. to around 8 p.m. program. So these are some pictures of NYU if you haven't been there. These were the lecture halls. I graduated number one out of those 40 kids. And then when I got back to high school, I was pretty much done. Um, but I had, I think, a couple of humanities courses left. So something extraordinary happened. By the way, women have been very key to my life, not only my grandmother, but there was a teacher by the name of Stella Alexiak. She just passed away at the age of 93 a couple of years ago. But she was starting this concept of independent study in a high school. And she wanted to let kids or uh, figure out if they want, if they had excelled to do other things. Now, this was unheard of in the 1970s. She had to fight not only with the principal, but with the superintendent of schools, because I had gotten the opportunity to go work full time at what was called Rutgers Medical School. So Livingston is one place. Newark is around 30 miles away. So she fought for me to go in the middle of class. I had only a couple of classes to Newark as a 14 year old work there. Um, and get some independent study credit. Anyway, she was successful in doing that, but she was a fighter. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have had this opportunity. And obviously it fell on my mom to figure out how to get me back and forth, you know? Um, so anyway, if you've been to Newark, there's a, at that time, the medical school is called the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Um, and this is in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. Um, and most white people are afraid to still go into Newark. They think they're gonna get mugged, all right? And that time it was the crime was even, the crimes were even worse. But all of the people in that hospital became my close friends, the secretaries, the nurses, uh, custodial workers, et cetera. And they didn't pay me the first year. I was given the title of a research fellow as a 14 year old kid. Dr. Les Michelson, who was the head of the lab, he had he was a physicist out of Brookhaven National Labs. And this remember, it's the early days of computing. He had gotten some mini computers and he was starting to use computing to analyze data in medicine, right? So people were getting cardiology data. He was building algorithms, that kind of thing. Um, and his name is Les Michelson. Les is still there. And uh, so Dr. Michelson saw me and he said, look, here's the rule. We're going to treat you like an adult. And we're not going to give you any special treatment. You have to show up to work. Uh, here's your desk and you have to work, you know, uh, as hard as we do. Now, everyone in that lab was probably 30 to 50 years older than me. But what was phenomenal was I was not treated like a lower caste person. I wasn't treated less. I was treated like a human being. And given my work was, uh, I was judged by the work I did. And I worked my butt off. I used to work until two in the morning, um, et cetera. And what was the job I was given? First, I was given an interesting job because I was interested in medicine. Um, Rutgers Medical School in those days was just getting computers, but they also had phenomenal data from Montefiore Hospital on longitudinal data on baby sleep patterns. And there's a, there's a disease called sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. This is 1978. The idea was, could you look at these sleep patterns and when they knew when the baby stopped breathing, could you connect the two, what you would today call machine learning, right? And could you predict the onset of an apnea? So that's what I ended up doing. 
And I, in fact, published a paper before on this and presented at one of the biomedical conferences, all this before I came to MIT, okay? By the way, I was also an athlete, uh, center half. Uh, you know, our, we went 13 and 0 in a very big division in New Jersey. So I wasn't just a nerd nerding away, I enjoyed sports. Um, now, the, because I was good at this, another job I was given was the following. Um, anyone over the age of 40 will remember that there were two ways people communicated in these large organizations. One was at physical telephone. We didn't have cell phones. Fax machines weren't really coming out. Um, and the other way was the inter-office mail system. This is a very complex system. Now, in those big mainframe computers, you could send these little text messages, all right? Little, you know, like not even a tweet. Um, but in this um, hospital, research hospital, like every other organization, whether it was the office of the president, whether it was the government, you had people in offices who manned this inter-office mail system and it was always a woman. Again, in those days, women were relegated to four jobs, nurse, secretary, a teacher, or mom, you know, house mom. Now, and this is what those uh, if you haven't seen, this is what they look like, okay? Anyone seen anything like this? This was like where yeah, Jerry has, okay? Um, but in every office, people had on their desktop, a secretary on our desk had an inbox, a physical box, an outbox. And I wanna walk through this so you'll understand this is not something simple, okay? She had something called a drafts folder underneath her desk, there was a physical desktop. She had a trash can. On her desk, she also had something called whiteout. She had bond paper. She had carbon paper. She had little paper clips, um, and she had a typewriter. And she and the, the process went like this: the doctor would go over to the secretary and say, "Alice, take me a message," and he'd say to Doctor Blah from, you know, let's say Doctor Michelson, uh, "We're going to hire John today. We're, gonna, we're thinking of hiring John Medlar." Uh, here his is, uh, you know, let's attach his uh, resume on uh, maybe CC, carbon copy, the head of HR, and BCC is boss. Very interesting, right? Secretary would type it up. She would put it in the drafts folder. He'd come up the next day, you know, maybe say this is wrong, redline it. She would do it again, smiggle a couple of times. When it was final, she would type it up. Now, if there were three CCs, he would literally have to put a piece of white paper, carbon paper, type one, put another piece of carbon paper type again. So you can imagine if there are 10 CCs, all right? And then the BCC was blind carbon copy. So it was literally carbon paper. And then you'd attach it and then you'd put it, um, so this is like, for example, and by the way, the memorandum had a very particular structure. It would have plus sign, plus sign, plus sign, memorandum, plus sign, it was very structured. Everyone see this? To, from, subject, CC, enclosure, et cetera. And it would put in these little inner office mail envelopes. Some of you may remember this. And then it would be sent out through these pneumatic tubes. Sometimes it would be put in something called the outbox. Someone would come pick it up. Sometimes you could also do a registered mail, all right, where someone would have to take it and they'd bring it back. So if you actually enumerated, this was hundreds of little processes. It was not just sending a text message, okay? It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a system. Anyone, everyone understand what I'm saying? An interconnected system of parts. And so I was asked to convert this entire system, entire system to the electronic version, not spend 15 minutes at an at symbol 
and send text to the bottom of a file, which is what someone else did and defrauded everyone saying that he invented email. That's not email. That's called the exchange of simple text messages. And if you want to call that email, Samuel Moore should get the credit. But as a 14-year-old kid, worked every day, converted that entire system to the electronic version, and named that system email, a term never used before in the English language. So not only did I create all that stuff in Fortran, as Bob said, in a language, in 8K of memory, so I had to write all the memory swapping, all that stuff, which every, every software engineer today takes for granted, and named that system email. Why did I call it email? It's not an obvious term because the operating system only allowed five characters, okay? And it had to be in all caps, and they'll come back to this. Everything, in fact, in Fortran had to be in all caps. All the variables, you could only have six characters, but the program could only be five characters, but everything was always in caps, all right? This was in 1980, captured in one of the local newspapers. I. Uh, Today, I think it's called the Intel Awards. In those days, it was called the Westinghouse Science Awards. I won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards, so this was known. It was known in the local newspaper. And by the way, this system was deployed to all the thousands of offices. I had to write the user's manual. Dr. Michelson has a nice video. He says, you know, we had a huge presentation of this. 400 people showed up. And he said the, the guy giving the lecture to these doctors and scientists was not an, was not some... 50-year-old person was a 14-year-old kid. So I, I was the software engineer. I was the customer service person. I was the documentation person. If you ever started a software company, these are all departments. All right, so this system was fully running and people paid for it. In those days, there was things called time sharing. So based on how much you used it, you would have to pay you know, pennies for usage of this. And this was called email. So anyway, I came to MIT. And remember, just as an aside, no one told me about MIT. I went to, in my last three years, I went to a very wealthy school, Livingston High School. Chris Christie, by the way, comes from there. He was my catcher. Uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner lived there. And it was a predominantly Jewish school. My sister and I were the two dark-skinned Indian kids among 4,000 other kids. And no one told me about MIT. Isn't that interesting? I got 800 on my SATs, aced everything, won every math Olympiad. No one told me about MIT. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? It's very weird. Now, how did I find out about MIT? My mother was always helping people. She would help these two homeless people stay in our home. She was constantly uh, that she'd met in the market. One of them had a very wacky friend who said, your son should go to MIT. And he brought the brochure and it said Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I thought it was a mental institute. The way I saw the dome and all that, and I had no interest. Um, my guidance counselor just told me to apply to the local state school. So uh, he wouldn't leave until two weeks before two weeks before the applications who came back. And I filled out that thing with a pencil. Anyway, I get accepted and uh, I come to MIT to visit. And I remember walking up Mass Avenue, I'll never forget this. And I saw all these crazy looking people. They looked completely unhealthy. The student looked like he was 90 years old, sorry. They look totally nerded out. And I said, these people look totally effed up, okay? And I had no interest in coming here. I went back to my um, high school and my physics teacher said, no, 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 now she wanted me to go there. And she, by the way, she was in the 
concentration camp. So she had the tattoos on her arm. She goes, my son is at MIT and you should go there. And remember these high schools get ratings based on how many people go to different schools. So they were encouraging me to go to now MIT, which they didn't even tell me about. So I had no interest in coming here, but she said, you like Boston, it's a cool city. And I always liked cities. So I decided to come to MIT because of Boston. That was the reason. So when I came to MIT on the, you guys have the orientation, right? Remember in the great court, you guys still do that? So I remember this paper had come out. This was the MIT tech talk. I don't, I don't think this still exists anymore, do they? There's a tech, but this was the administration's newspaper. And the front page of it, it highlighted three kids out of the 1,041 kids who came here. And I was highlighted for creating this email system. And I didn't think much about it because you see, I was brought up to be a humble Indian kid. Right? Indians are taught to be very humble. Okay. It's not a good thing. It really isn't because other people are taught to, you know, do little and boast what they did all day. And it was a very interesting lesson. It took me 40 years to learn that. So I was elected student body president, freshman body president, and I went to Paul Gray, the president invited all the you know student government leaders. And Dr. Gray was at that time on the White House Science Council for Ronald Reagan. And um, Paul Gray pulled me aside at his house and he said, you know, I know you invented email, but he goes, you know, uh, it's really unfortunate the Supreme, the, the, the courts, the Supreme Court is not recognizing software patents. And this is something he was fighting for. Because look, people didn't know what software was. They thought someone was writing something. That's how new it was on a piece, on a screen. They thought it was like typing something, right? You can see a physical device like a microphone, right? It was something in the ether. So there was no laws. The, the dumb legislators in Congress didn't even know how to value this. But in 1980, the Computer Software Act of 1980 was passed. And the Computer Software Act of 1980 used a Copyright Act of 1976, which protected literary work. And it said that you could use, you could protect software inventions using, using the Computer Act of 1980. So Dr. Gray is the one who told me about this. My parents weren't lawyers. So in those days, you had to write away for the copyright um, material. And it wasn't simply putting a C on it you know, and just getting a little logo, you had to submit all your software code, all of it. And, and we had to go back and forth with the Library of Congress. And on August 30th, 1982, at that time I was an MIT student, uh, I don't think I'd become a US citizen yet. Um, it was 83, but I was awarded the first US copyright recognizing me as the inventor of email. Wrote the code, named it email, I have the legal certificate. Any controversy? Yeah. Nope. Period. Wrote the code, named it email, and I have the copyright. All right. So forgot about it. All right. Because I was interested in medicine and I was interested in systems. I was in interested in systems of power. So I don't know if you have a program still called Europe, University. You still have Europe here? Yeah. Dr. Gray had just started that program. So I wanted to understand systems of power. So uh, you could, by the way, you could sign up with any professor and they had to accept you into a research program. So the guy that I worked with was, was a guy called Chomsky, Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky, next, I think Jesus Christ is the most cited scholar in world history for his work on, you know, generative grammar, right? Universal grammar, et cetera. 
So Noam was not only a linguist, but he was also interested in politics. He didn't think it was sufficient to just be nerding out, but you also had to participate in the real world. And so I started, um, John, I need, you're gonna run out of juice. You need your, you got it? Did you bring your charger? John? Okay, so um, let John get that. So um, I was interested in systems, you say, caste systems, medical systems, et cetera. And um, so I studied with Noam de Europe and uh, really to understand the origin of the Indian caste system. Where did it come from? And over a period of a year, what I uncovered was that the caste system was actually waning, was actually almost sort of embryonic uh, movements were going to get rid of it, starting with the eighth century movement of the, what was called the Bhakti movement in India. And um, by the time the British came, elements of the caste system we're actually starting to dwindle away. Not fully, let's not give Indians all the credit, but elements were starting to dwindle away. And what the British did in, in the 15th, in the 16th century, and I'm sorry, after the Battle of Plassey in 1757, when British actually became an occupying force, they actually said, wow, the caste system is actually a way we could structure these brown people and we can control them better. And that's why they reinstantiated the caste system in India. They in fact found the old draconian pre-8th century rules. So during the 8th century, they're very much like the Protestant Reformation. There was a movement to start eliminating the caste system. It was called the Bhakti movement, but it was put back in force. And there's a larger history and you, you start really studying and you find out that there's a whole strata of Indians who were put in place, place pr primarily Brahmins, to run the entire Indian civil service. And Gandhi really didn't bring, frankly, we could have a longer discussion, independence to India, he transferred power from white guys with crowns to brown men with white hats. That's what really happened in India. So India had massive corruption and still a finite set of 0.001% uh, running it. But that's what I learned. But the systems knowledge um, was what motivated me because I also was interested in medicine. Uh, by the way, I was accepted uh, to, the M to the PhD program in neuroscience with opportunity to go to the Harvard Medical School but I, something in me didn't like the Western medical approach because I felt that they were looking at the body, not as a whole, but if you went to a doctor today with a headache, you may get what, five appointments, right? With a neurologist, an endocrinologist, a psychologist, et cetera. Um, and essentially the body was seen as part. So one part interested in politics always because of my background, the other part interested in medicine. So what did I end up doing? I really didn't want to do the medical stuff. I ended up getting four degrees. I did my uh, uh, undergraduate work in double E, uh, created an operating system for cardiology workstations um, while I was doing a co-op over at HP up in Andover. Um, then I went to work at a small company after that. We created the first uh, a pred predecessor to PowerPoint called Freelance, which was for one, two, three. Some people may know this, Lotus one, two, three, and we sold it to IBM. And I came back to the media lab in the 80s when scientific visualization was just starting, where you could use lots of data, big data, and starting to visualize it. So that was my master's work. And I did another master's work in MIT looking at you know, um, wave propagation, theoretical uh, wave propagation. In the midst of doing all this, um, and by the way, I ended up doing a PhD in BE, which I'll talk about. But when I did all of this, I started my PhD because I was very interested in a field called pattern recognition. And could I create an environment, what you today call AI? Um, so, I, so I created a framework 
to look at all different kinds of patterns, ultrasonic signals, face, and I realized signatures that every domain was creating their own methodologies. And could you create an Uber way of handling any type of signal? And my thesis at that time was called information cybernetics. And in the middle of that, something interesting happens. So this is 93. So if you remember between 1978 to 1993, email was really an office application, an intranet application. You don't need the internet for email. Okay, another myth. In the old days, people just wire a bunch of computers and you put your email program on it. But what happened in 93? Anyone remember? There was a bomb under the Twin Towers. Yeah, that's one thing. But what happened in terms of computing? The World Wide Web starts into being, and, um, and the web essentially created a protocol called HTTP. So what that meant was the internet now had a GUI front end. And with a mouse, you could click. And it was quite extraordinary. If you go look at the New York Times, it had this very interesting, the first HTML page. And this was important because now the internet was going to become accessible to everyday people. Email, which was the app, the application I created back in 78, was now moving to become a web-based application. So companies like Hotmail, Yahoo, all these AOL start coming out. And at that point, the application is moved to an online web interface. And if I were in a room of a thousand people like this in 92, and I said, how many people have an email account? Maybe two out of a thousand. But in 93, 94, email use explosively grows because it becomes a consumer application. And because it becomes a consumer application, the White House was starting to get, or organizations were starting to get not just a few emails, but thousands. In fact, Clinton was in office at that time and they were starting to get thousands of emails per day and was doubling every month. And how did the White House handle email? They had interns. Probably shouldn't use the word interns with Clinton, but Clinton had interns. And these interns would read the emails, right? And they would bucket them into, well, they would print out the email. They handed it as letters. And they had 147 different buckets. And they put these uh, emails into these buckets and choose a form letter. And you would get back a physical letter to an email, okay? So anyway, the White House runs a contest with the National Institute of Standards to see are there technologies that could automatically read the emails and categorize them. Um, there were four public companies involved. Um, I was invited to participate because a professor at MIT had heard about my work. I ended up winning that contest and it was in the Christian Science Monitor. In fact, won one of the Lemelson MIT finalist awards. So what did I do? My attorney at the time said, Shiva, you could always do your PhD you know, take this out of MIT and start a company. I had to get the waiver rights from Lita Nelson at the time because MIT technically could have owned it. And their, MIT was actually pretty gracious. So I went and created a company called EchoMail. And so EchoMail was a company which could would handle this problem, which was you're getting lots of emails um, and we would take an email. We used, a, 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 uh, I have three, by the way, three of the earliest patents on this, which by the way, where you'll see some interesting stuff where, likely going to be suing ChatGPT and all these guys because we have the three earliest patents on analysis of text. So 90, 1994, you could start patenting software, by the way. Why? Because the finally, the Federal Court of Appeals said software is a digital machine. So this was very, very early. So we had, so I got those three patents. We created a company called EchoMail where we'd take email and we would try to bucket it and answer it. Now, I had no money didn't know how to raise money. I went to the mayor of Cambridge and I said, look, I'll give you 
uh, we'll build a website for you. He said, go to the Arts Center, which is a Cambridge Multicultural Arts Association over at Goldfinch. And so we convinced them to give us a little room. We built their website. In return, um, they gave us space. I wrote a book called Arts and the Internet because the first thing we were doing was putting a lot of artists up on the internet. And in the book, I did an advertisement for MCI who gave me a free T1 line. So the whole thing was barter. And so we built the first arts online website and I was trying to figure out how to make money off this. So I did 40 trips on the Fu Huang bus, I think it's still around the Chinese bus, back and forth to AT&T. AT&T 1995 decided that they were gonna build a massive website and they were spending 10 million bucks. People are spending like 10 bucks for a website. After 40 trips back and forth, I convinced them that they were gonna have lots of email coming in and why don't they buy my product called Echo Mail and they would route their email to us. Our technology would read it, categorize it by attitude, product, with a very interesting way of doing it, learn. And for every email that we processed, we'd get 30 cents and every email that was categorized right, we'd get a buck 80, okay? So at t was our first customer. Then I got Nike, Citigroup, and we grew that company to around a 250 million valued company with no VC funding. I did 40 million in sales myself at the time while building the software. And then, you know, MIT had a front page news article on it, okay? And they called me Dr. Email, all right? And many people covered this. So it wasn't like, you know, I needed, you know, the. so this is a second life with email. In fact, uh, the Wall Street Journal on the 125th issue had me write the essay on where email was going. This is MIT's article, you guys should go read it, but it really talks about the entire issue. In fact, when Hillary Clinton uh, was putting her email server. I was asked what I thought about it. I said the woman should be in jail uh, long before Trump said it, okay, which she should be in jail. It's, it's quite incredible that she got away with it. So that was, was supposed to be a two-year effort. It ended up being a 10-year event with building Echo Mail. I, I made very good money off of it, built a lot of infrastructure. And then I was randomly walking back to MIT and Professor Dewey, anyone know Forbes Dewey? Forbes probably 80 right now, but Forbes had three professorships in ME, biological engineering, and HST. And he said, Shiva, you got to finish your PhD. And he goes, let me tell you what's going on. He goes, you love medicine, you love computing, you love systems. And what was going on was, some of you may know, the Genome Project started when, 1993? You remember this? Um, we knew at the time of the Genome Project, a worm had around 20,000 genes, protein coding genes. And the question was how many genes, well, we wanted to map out the human genome. The thesis was that complexity is directly correlated to the number of genes. More genes, more complexity, right? This is a very reductionist view of the world, but biologists are very reductionist. They do good work. So if you look at this curve, it starts going down and down and down. As the genome project progresses, we're not finding a million genes. We're not finding 100,000 genes. We only have about 20,000 protein coding genes, okay? So this was a revolution in biology. And so Forbes said, look, what's happening is people are realizing, and Peter Hunter, who was on our scientific advisory board, he had just written this paper in Nature saying, if you're really gonna understand the whole human being holistically, it's not just understanding the genes. We have to connect genes with proteins, with cells, with, uh, tissues with organs. So it's a multi-scale problem, as we would say in, in many of the engineering physics, right? It's a multi-scale spatially and temporally, right? 
and it's very complicated. It's actually much more complicated than gas dynamics and fluid dynamics problems because every biologist is doing domain specific stuff. And how would you put all this together? So in 2000, and, and by the way, just to give you the other piece of it, the implications are, uh, in fact, I'll come back to this. Um, let me get, come back to this here. But in 2003, the National Science Foundation had put forward a grand challenge, which was, could you mathematically model the whole human cell? We wanted to move outside of the nucleus. And if you think about the cell as a well-mixed reactor of many, many chemical reactions, right? So if you read a paper in science today, if you go read a paper in cancer or osteoarthritis or whatever it is, you take the field of osteoarthritis, there's around 22,000 papers written in that field. At the end of every paper, typically, you'll see one of these ball and stick diagrams. These are called molecular pathways. Someone could win a Nobel Prize just for that. So someone does their in vitro and their in vivo work, test tube and lab work, and they finally map out a bunch of reactions, right? And these are chemical reactions that they've discovered, like sodium plus chloride goes to sodium chloride, and they publish it. And then the biologist goes to the next problem and the next problem, right? Well, in 2003, these little molecular pathways were being converted using Michelson-Menten and different types of methodologies to small molecular pathway models. So imagine if you could, so a graduate student, if there's any grad students here, you may spend your four years just taking one of those, converting it, and then you're forgotten, right? So the issue is, could you mathematically create a whole model of the human cell? That was called the grand challenge. Now, why is this important? The implications are the following. In pharma, pharma is really, you know, pharma is a very, very medieval model. They only work on a single compound, synthetic compound. They do two to three years of in vitro work. Then they kill a bunch of animals. That takes five years. If it makes it past that, that's called preclinical work. Then you get to go file for an investigational new drug. And then you go down phase one, phase two, phase three. Everyone familiar with this? So, you know, Cambridge is supposed to have 10 million square feet of lab space, okay? That's why all this lab space is being developed. But it's to support this very medieval process. 20% of the stuff coming out of phase one actually even makes it. And most of the drugs that make it all the way through only help 10% of the disease. So it's a very, very inefficient model. But because of the amount of capital in it, it keeps moving forward like a old elephant, you know? And this is a reality of it. Uh, we spent 17% on, on healthcare, more than defense, because of this archaic system. And the funny thing is more and more R&D gets spent on this system and less and less new drugs are actually being found. All right? So it's a racket. And by the way, the pharmaceutical companies were tanking. Pfizer's revenue was $65 billion in 2012, and it hit $45 billion. If it wasn't for the vaccines, Pfizer would be in the dirt. So you have to really think about this. But this model is a completely defunct model, okay? So why does this occur? Because the way that drug development takes place is it would be like the way airplane development took place. Someone has a design of some wing, they throw a pilot in, and if he fails, they go, gee whiz, we killed him. If he succeeds, then they rationally explain why that wing design worked, right? It's rationalized drug development. And uh, when you really unravel this, you find out it's because of academic research is very siloed, like the blind man touching the elephant. And there's not an incentive for people to work together. If they did, you'd end up with an elephant that looked like that. So anyway, I came back in 2003 at the age of 40, okay? I had to take all my general exams again. And what I proposed was we're gonna model the whole cell we treat it as a distributed engineering systems problem, not a biology problem, not a biochemistry problem. And that resulted in 
my creating a new technology called Cytosol. So 2003 to seven, I created it. Between seven to 12, we had to publish because this was so new. And then 12 to 2019, we commercialized it. And now we're using it to go, go after, going after every major disease on the planet. And we have a very, very different approach. But this was my thesis work, we published. Um, and just to give you an idea of this, um, this was work I did between MIT, Harvard, Brigham, and King's College. If you, if you take a phenomenon, oh, it's doing John. Oh, there, okay. So if you look at blood flow in your arteries, when blood flows through your arteries, your body releases nitric oxide. How does that occur? If you go read the literature, you'll see all these little ball and stick diagrams because biology is still diagrammatic. With our engine, we can take those diagrams decentrally, compute them, but not using AI machine learning because in biology, you actually need to focus on mechanisms. And so here, for example, is our prediction of how much NO would get released. And then we tested it in the wet lab. Quite impressive, it's not a curve fit. And when this came out, we, we got to publish in one of the leading journals in the world, Cell. And, and this is almost 10 years ago now, but we've now created architectures of every major disease. We have the models and we're doing combination screening, but going after natural compounds. And so, by the way, this interesting paper came out in Nature saying, if you're gonna solve cancer, you have to use cocktails. And my thesis was the only one presented there having the capability to do this. When this paper came out, and I don't know any of the writers, by the way, no inside job, we raised about a million bucks. And what we ended up doing was, um, like the old models going back to my grandmother's times where the yogi would combine stuff, we were able to, for example, look at combination therapy. So here we've modeled all the places curcumin, which is in turmeric, it's all the molecular mechanisms of inflammation, same with red grapes, and then we're able to do combinations. So we're able to find combinations that work better synergistically than the individual compound. More recently, we used that 1 million bucks we raised, that's all we've raised so far, and we looked at all the 270 drugs for cancer. We modeled the molecular mechanism of pancreatic cancer, and we discovered a two-drug combination, which we got allowed by the FDA in a record 11 months, and we spun that off with MD Anderson, okay? And if you, anyone's interested, that's cytosol. All right, so that was 2007, finished my PhD. I decided to do something crazy. I decided, hey, let me take some time off, go back to India. And I want to study ancient systems of medicine, which is what my grandmother did. This was on the front page of MIT, okay? And it was a very interesting article. It's like Fulbright scholar wants to go back to India. Why does Shiva Iadre want to go back to India with his four degrees, you know? Because I wanted to go study ancient systems of medicine. And so the problem I wanted to solve was, if you look, this is the way the Western world looks at the body. This is the way my grandmother looked at the body. Could I intersect both of these worlds, right? Because there's two different languages. Aaron, following me? One world, both are looking at the body. They have two different languages. And the big aha moment I had, and I published this, the findings I published in an engineering systems journal. And what I discovered was that if you talk to an Indian physician, you know, like my grandmother, she would say, oh, your body, John, has a lot of vatha, and Adam, your body has a lot of pitha, and therefore you should eat this and you should eat that, okay? So what I discovered was, there's all these terms that are used. So karma is actually a word that means right action. It has nothing to do with some past life, actually. It's right action. The other word is karma fall, which is a fruit of action. Sounds like input and output, doesn't it? And vatha, it has to do with aspects of motion. Pitta is like digestion, conversion, and kapha is storage, okay? Structure. 
And when you combine that with yoga, at one point, yoga and Indian medicines were together and they've been also been disintegrated. Sankalpa was a mission someone had, manas were your mind, indriyas were your sensors and vikaras were disturbances. Anyway, when you look at this, the reason I put it in that framework is if you study general systems theory of input and output, transport, conversion, storage, that, that comes from general thermodynamic theory. You combine that with control systems. And this is if you take, I think it used to be called 203. I don't know what it's called these days. Anyone know? Controls class. But this is what you learn. This is modern Western engineering, right? The entire world runs on it. But when you lay them side, side by side, this is what you discover. So the ancient rishis were looking at the body as a system. The problem is most of the people who practice Ayurveda or Siddha, they just repeat stuff. They don't even know what they're saying. But this is what I uncovered, that the ancient systems of Indian medicine were actually an engineering systems approach, right? And so transport, conversion, storage are the same as Vatha, Pitha, Kapha. When I, I put this into a tool to educate people, so you didn't have to go all the way to India to get, you know, or for, for that matter, pay these, pay these, <laughs> Uh, today, a lot of these new age doctors like Deepak Chopra, $3,000, $4,000 to diagnose you. So with this tool, we give it away. You figure out what kind of body type you are when your body's off course a black dot. And then it calculates for you the right foods that are right for you. We actually use a form of tensors. Then we put together an institute called Systems Health, where we've trained thousands of physicians, thousands of practitioners. In fact, I started teaching this at MIT. Um, into a course, which was called Systems Biology and Traditional Medicine, one of the most popular lecture series. And uh, anyway, when I was in India, something interesting happened. When I was getting finishing my Fulbright, the Prime Minister of India, Manmohan Singh, um, through his Director General, said, why are you going back to the United States? This was 2009. India wants to unleash innovation. We've had this innovation organization called the Center, that's what that logo is, Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. You have degrees from MIT, you, you created all these companies. Will you help us innovate? Because we've, for the last 70 years, this lab has done nothing and people are thinking that we're all corrupt. So my father-in-law at the time said, wow, you're gonna be a, a deputy secretary in the Indian government, the highest level scientist, because no one gets that appointment. So I took it and I put forward a, an entire plan how India could unleash innovation in a very rapid form. Um, but what I found out was the guys that hired me really didn't want me to do anything. They just, they gave me a huge mansion in Delhi, free cars, right? You know, salute you, everything you can imagine. And I'm two levels before, uh, below the prime minister of India. So they thought I, the MIT guy would just sit there, make them look good. They didn't know who they hired. Okay. I didn't do that. I wrote, eventually I realized that they didn't want me to do anything. And as I traveled around India, I found amazing scientists but they were always in a feudal system. Their own bosses were jealous of them. By the way, India has produced no Nobel Prize scientists since colonialism. Do you guys know that? Not one. Gobind Karana couldn't even get a job as a lecturer in India. He had to come to the United States. He won the Nobel Prize here. So you start seeing this massive inertia of the Indian feudal system that oppresses its own people. So I, Wrote, and I didn't want to hang out doing this, even though 99, my father-in-law said, Shiva, just shut the fuck up. Be quiet. You will one day become the minister of science and technology. Zip it. Well, I didn't do that. I wrote a report exposing all the corruption in India, what I'd seen. 
the scientists loved me and I was fired. Okay, this is a front page in Stone Times. Not only was I fired, I was threatened. Some mobsters, bunch of mafia. I was evicted from my house, threatened with criminal sanctions, and then I had to leave India. And the, by the way, the, the night before I left, the number one Indian uh, news organization said, Dr. Shiva, we'd like to interview you. I went to interview with them. They said, if you give this interview, you may be thrown in jail. I called the US embassy. They said, don't do it, come here. Anyway, the only people I could think about were my grandparents. And I said, you know, if I don't do something, who will? And this is a decision every one of you will have to make, is if you are a scientist and you gotten to a certain level, are you willing to capitulate, capitulate, capitulate? That's not me. So I gave this report and the next night I got on a third class train, drove it, you know, with chickens and everything, with all I had was my passport and my wallet to the border of Nepal, crossed over, went to Kathmandu and then got back home. When I got back home, and that's a trip I took, um, the editor of Nature said, Dr. Shiva, we've been watching this organization for 70 years and we know it's corrupt. Will you write an article for us? So I wrote an article called Innovation Demands Freedom. Why They removed the subtitle, Why America Innovates in India May Never. It gets published. The prime minister's office threatens the editor of Nature. She freaks out and she pulls it down. Okay. So that's how I came back in 2010, back to MIT. Doug Laufenberger, the head of the BE department, um, gave me a lecturer position and I taught a course called Systems Biology and Traditional Medicines. In fact, the number one scientist of India wrote to the prime minister and he said, please do something. You know, you're going to lose a great person. He embargo, the number one scientist in India. So anyway, I came back, started teaching my course. In fact, there was two courses I used to teach, systems visualization, the number one elective. A lot of other professors were quite jealous because I'd get about 60, 70 students in an elective course. It's a lot. So um, something interesting happens in 2011. My dear mom is dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. And in a small suitcase, three months before she dies, she had preserved all of that stuff from 1978. Remember, I didn't, I didn't seek any PR. Didn't go and say, you know, hey, Walter Isaacson, write a book for me, you know, pay money to do that, which is what most people do. So my mom had saved all this material, everything, the computer code, everything. The editor of Time Magazine, Doug Ameth, a senior technology editor, said, wow, you invented email. He writes an article, November 11th, 2011. No one had a problem with this. Then the Smithsonian contacted me. I didn't go to them. And they said, wow, you have a treasure trove of stuff. We didn't know this. And Washington Post, a young African-American writer writes an article called <coughs> Dr. Shiv, you know, Shiv Idre, inventor of email honored by the Smithsonian. Now you would think this was February 16, 2010 would be an occasion for celebration of the American dream, wouldn't you? Shouldn't it be? Mm -hmm. What happens? This stuff like this comes out by Gawker Media calling me an asshole, a dick, a fraud, and stuff like this. And I want every student to look at this if you're here. Fucking shameless cretin, he should be hanged by his curry-stained fingernails. This is not 1950. This is 2012. Hmm. And MIT's mission statement is diversity. Not one person at MIT did, did anything. In fact, thousands of calls came into MIT saying, who the fuck is this guy? He should be fired. How dare he say he invented email? 
I didn't seek this. And I'm looking at this coming into class, teaching them saying, what the hell's going on? Everyone see this? So when MIT talks about diversity, let them really talk about it because no one lifted their hand except Noam Chomsky. And by the way, they went to my Wikipedia page and they destroyed everything. Everything I had done was taken away overnight. And a senior Wikipedia editor wrote to me. He said, I attempted to change your page to give you credit. He goes, the article on email is more volatile than the article on abortion, than the article on the Second Amendment. And there was one student in my class, Devin Sparks, who was so upset at all this. Out of all the hundreds of students, one student, Devin came from a poor family in Vermont and he was watching this. And he spent three months in the MIT library because when you're being attacked like this, you said, shit, did I not invent email? And I've talked to women who get raped. They think, wow, maybe I did something wrong. All right. And so who was behind this? An organization called SIG CIS, a bunch of academics who think they own the story on email. Academics. And this was a new skull that was found like in Africa. This had to be snuffed out. Turns out this organization is very close with Raytheon. At that time, Raytheon was a multi $37 billion defense company, was using the at logo, and they were promoting this fool, Ray Tomlinson, who did not invent email. To his own admission, he says, I just spent 15 minutes. I took two programs, an FTP program <laughs> and send message so you could add text to the bottom of the file. That's not email, guys. He didn't call it email. That's not email. 15 minutes is far different than what I did as a 14-year-old kid with all that work. But thousands of calls came in. And here, as I'll share with you, I had spent my whole life in this institution fighting to make sure more poor blacks, poor whites came in. I organized the food service workers. I, I was a student who organized the apartheid protest. I did that. But no one wanted to stand up. Where was their spines? Why? Because this invention occurred before I came to MIT. I was on the front page for inventing many things, wasn't I? Many things. Fulbright Scholarship, Echo Mail, the brown model minority, serving the man. But this had a problem because this $37 billion company was promoting themselves as a leaders in cybersecurity because what had occurred in 2007, missile sales were going down. Every defense company was getting involved in cybersecurity. By putting that at logo and saying they were the inventors of email, that gave them a big advantage in filing RFPs. Anyone know what RFPs are? Requests for proposals. And they were running a Madison Avenue campaign with that guy who knowingly knew he did not invent email. And so when this went into the Smithsonian, the academics colluded with Raytheon to try to destroy my character, character assassination. But they forgot something about me. You see, that's a picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. Long before it was in vogue to talk about diversity because MIT had millions of dollars investments in South Africa. I led one of the biggest protests across the BU Bridge, came over on the steps of Student Center, and we burned that flag, and then we marched into Gray's office and we demanded divestment. We got MIT to divest. And we didn't pussyfoot around. We didn't say no to apartheid like ceasefire. Now we said apartheid in South Africa, burn it to the ground. Because that was a sentiment then because students were being butchered in South Africa. 
You see, they didn't know this. They didn't know that I would not be a good Indian. This is where the real racism comes in. Had I been, maybe my last name was some other name and I had blue hair or blonde hair and blue eyes, I'd be on the, I, I should be on the stamp on every place. But I've had to fight this fight all my life. And that's a picture of me when my friend, an MIT physicist, was jailed by the, by the Sri Lankan government. When the prime minister of MIT came to the president's house, we chased him out and we got him out. He was jailed by the, by the Sri Lankan government and beaten, an MIT physicist. And there's a picture of me at my MIT graduation. MIT, the United States had just invaded Iraq, right out on the great court out there, 20,000 people. I took out this thing, said US out of Iraq. Half of the crowd booed me and the other half gave me a standing ovation. It didn't matter, I had to do the right thing. And so, when all this is going on, that me who had fought for others, no one was willing to fight for me. And it was a very interesting personal journey. I had to say, wait a minute. It was a, it was a journey because you have to say, wait a minute, I never wanted credit, but I have to take the credit because it is the truth. And it's an interesting journey when you have to fight for yourself. It's easier for me to fight for John or fight for Michelle or fight for Adam. It's harder when you have to fight for yourself because you have to go through this, oh, people are gonna say I'm self-promotional. People are gonna say, ooh, you just want credit. But credit does matter. You know why credit matters? Because we should put truth of, of the people who actually did the work. MIT did not create email. ARPANET did not create email. They didn't create it, I did it. As a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey, not in the framework of the military industrial academic complex, but in the framework of a loving family, a mentor and some infrastructure. And that's what MIT does not want to teach us. <clears throat> See, I didn't need to come to MIT. MIT actually benefited from me and it benefited from you because you already were good students before. They put your brand on it. That's a bigger story, but I had to then defend myself. One of the students, we went and researched everything the MIT microfiche because we're wondering, did someone create email? We created the website, Inventor of Email, that I'm attacked for creating Inventor of Email. Oh, you're registering domain names. Fuck yes, I am. Because I'm gonna now take the credit that's rightfully mine. And you're attacking me for that? You're snickering for that? And lo and behold, that's why I believe there's a God, David Crock of shit, this guy, David Crocker, who's attacking me in the Washington Post, saying, oh, email could never have been created by one person. It was a collaboration. You see, that's another way of plagiarizing people's work. And he had written this report, he forgot, in December of 1977, read it. It says, at this time, no attempt is being made to emulate a full-scale interorganizational mail system, the interoffice mail system. They thought it was impossible because they were a bunch of nerds, old white guys, just trying to transact messages. They thought secretaries were stupid. That's what that sentence means. means it's almost impossible to build a system to meet all users' needs because you'd have to create a user interface. You'd have to put all these features in. But see, I had respect for those women. I didn't think they were less. Is this becoming clear to you guys? Mm -hmm. So this was a document. When we put this out, Crocker got scared. He contacted Les Michelson to try to snuff it out. And the Smithsonian, a bunch of spineless people, they said, well, after they got all the material, electronic messaging predates email. Yeah, I never said I created electronic messaging. I created email, the system. You see, academics, 99% of them are spineless. 
That's what you will learn. And in fact, they've gotten more spineless since the 1970s at places like MIT, because they get rid of the really good people. And I wish some of those professors were here right now. So I was in Noam's office and I said, Noam, you, you gotta look at this. And Noam was the only one who did this. He goes, it's black and white, a 14 year old kid invented email. He called me at midnight. The next day he said, Shiva, I'm getting by the MIT administration, my home institution. And MIT wanted him to be quiet. Why is this story have to be censored? Why does this have to be canceled? And in the middle of this, so this started in 2012, and I got restitution in 2016. And my very close friend, my uh, when I was 13 years old, Lorraine Minetti, came from New Jersey here, and she would just cook for me and clean for me and help me out because I had to write all this shit. And in the middle of this, Walter Isaacson, another racist, that's who he is. He writes a book in the middle of this as though he was commissioned to snuff out the story called The Innovators of the Digital Revolution. And I'm gonna, and all of you here, listen very carefully. He writes this story in the middle of this controversy, a fabricated controversy. And look at the title, Innovators of the Digital Revolution. Isn't email part of the digital revolution, Adam? Yes. Isn't it? Bob? Well, it's not even mentioned in the book. And who does he attribute to great innovators? And please tell me if you see a pattern here. Do you see the pattern I see? Even a white woman. Where are all the dark people? We're all the yellow people. I've never played the race card in my life. I never had to, but this was fucking racist. And he attributes at the end of it to Vannevar Bush. Anyone know who Vannevar Bush is? He's a president of MIT who created Raytheon. And in the book, he says, all great innovations come from the military industrial academic complex. You say? which is what not only Eisenhower, but by the way, Eisenhower's speech was military industrial complex. It was actually military industrial academic complex. Jay Stratton, who's a president of MIT, who was an advisor, removed the word academic. Then Fulbright used the word military industrial academic complex. And what is this? This is basically, basically saying that all great innovations come from the military, big academia, big corporations. And you see, all those people are part of that. I was part of that when I was at MIT doing all their great stuff, right? Front page, technology review, front page, Fulbright, all of that. But you see that brown skin, dark skin kid doesn't fit the narrative. That's a problem for them because that innovation took place before I came to MIT. You see, my point is you don't need to come to MIT to identify yourself to be an innovator. By the way, you could be a cool Harvard dropout. Ooh, then you get to make Facebook and Microsoft. That's cool because you get the Harvard logo. But problem is email was done before it came to MIT. And this blows away all this narrative that innovations occur in Silicon Valley and you know, et cetera. By the way, Philo Farnsworth was a boy who created TV. It took him 60 years to get credit for that. And he did it on a small farm. Um, RCA stole it from him. So it's not only me, and he was 14. So we're brainwashed into thinking, ooh, I go to MIT. Now I'm an innovator. 
And then VCs put billions of dollars over into Tech Square, and one Google comes out, ooh, aren't we great investors? It's all bullshit. The truth is, innovation occurs anytime, any place, by anybody. I didn't need to come to MIT, guys. MIT was lucky to have me in retrospect, and I can say that with boldness. MIT is lucky to have you. It's a brand. Now, you may have seen this. If you haven't seen the story, you should see the story called The Inside Job. It's a fascinating story. But you'll find out that this guy, an academic, and most of the academics are part of an organized crime network right now. That's who they are part of, unfortunately. He wrote a beautiful thesis called The Financial Stability of Iceland. You see, they do all these beautiful articles. You know, this professor at a, at a University of Minnesota wrote the thesis about how Alzheimer gets formed 16 years ago. And he had Photoshopped, Photoshopped Western blots. $3.7 billion went into his research and it was only discovered. Has anything happened to him? Nothing. Why isn't he in jail? Anyway, this guy had put forward this thesis of financial stability in Iceland. Well, <laughs> Iceland collapsed. And then he went to his own resume and changed the title of what he'd written. Remember when people said smoking was good for you? This was about, so you have academics as Dick Lindzen, who's a professor at MIT said have become prostitutes now. It's the oldest profession that's practiced right now. And we all have to, you guys all have to reflect on that. I don't, I've already done it, but you do. Because I know you got some messages. Ooh, how dare he says he invented email. Well, I fucking did invent email. And if it doesn't compute for you, well, that's your problem, not mine. All right, and we know what happened at the time of Galileo, okay? But guess what happens? After four years, I finally found an attorney when I was out in Malibu, Charles Harder, who had just won the Hulk Hogan case because Gawker had put out sex videos of Hulk Hogan banging his wife's friend or something, okay? But they put it out there. He sued, he won a $150 million lawsuit. Charles looked at my stuff, he looked at all the materials and you should all look at the materials, the facts are facts. And he said, wow, you invented email. We sued Gawker for $35 million and I won. And those of you snickering, start clapping, okay? Because I won. And not only did I win, they were forced to remove those three defamatory articles. And then all the liberal elites started calling me a fighter against free speech. Can you believe that? Defamation is not allowed by the First Amendment. And then I created a website. You can go to whoinventedemail.com. Go look at it. Share it with your friends. Because it's an indictment about MIT, actually, and all of academia. What they do when the stuff doesn't come from your own realm. But see, they got a problem with me, guys. I got those four MIT degrees, and I fucking put it out there. MIT PhD. Ooh, why do you say MIT PhD? And I put boldly, I'm the inventor of email because I will take credit for what I did because it's not about me. It's about where the origin of innovation comes from. And real innovation comes from everyday people solving real problems, not from some nerd who gets an MIT degree. 
And you should go, you will read the facts about email, why Ray Tomlinson is a fraud. And finally, after I won the lawsuit, then MIT people come out and say, yes, Desh Desponde, who's on the board of MIT, who made several billion dollars, he said, yep, she invented email. Sanjay Sharma. All right. I went back to my chemistry teacher. Now, this guy was a military guy. And he said, you know, we had this old teletype thing, but that's not email. Email is a system that Dr. Shiva created. Let me read what Dr. Michelson said, who's still alive. But see, the problem they have is typically they do this to people and they're dead. And they don't have a voice to fight back. Dr. Michelson said the facts are black and white on this. There's no gray area. The ARPANET didn't invent email. Ray Tomlinson didn't invent email. And neither did the so-called, quote, unquote, Internet pioneers of the 60s and 70s. Dr. Shiva Ayodhuri invented email. What the Internet pioneers did invent was a revisionist history of email's birth, which this victory exposes. Dr. Shiva's work reveals a larger truth that should be evident by now. Innovation can happen anywhere, anytime by anyone. This victory provides an opportunity to embrace that truth. The sooner we do, our lives will be enriched by the thousands of other Shivas that do not have the luxury of working in the established bastions of innovation, but nevertheless have the intellect and the drive to make big contributions. You see, there's a lot of other people like me, but they fucked up when they let me into MIT because I, I give those people a voice. And that's what this is about because this country was created on freedom, truth, and health. It was created about the individual being able to pursue their dreams, not a finite set of people controlling narratives. You can go read Stephen Chow's work, the number one lawyer on this issue. He said, of course he invented email. He has a copyright. Had patents existed, he would have done that. And let me read finally Debbie Nightingale, who was a dual professor at MIT, the head of systems, the engineering systems division. She said, email is a system, not the mere exchange of text messages. It is the electronic emulation of a complex system process that already existed in the inner office mail processing environment where collaboration was front and center. An email message, unlike a simple text message, touched multiple sets of people in the intra and inter organizational enterprise to get major tasks done, make decisions, hire employees, formalize contracts, close business and much more. In short, an integral system for running an organization, small or large. This is what email was designed for and it makes absolute sense why it came out of a health sciences institution where collaboration was critical to day-to-day -day operations. Dr. Shiva Idre is the inventor of email, that enterprise system, which is a mainstay of every organization. He never claimed to be the inventor of electronic messaging as the Smithsonian and the Washington Post stated in error and got completely wrong. There's no controversy except the one fabricated by these quote unquote internet pioneers to confuse and mislead journalists. Real journalists and scholars without vested interests and prejudices need to set the record straight. And then you can read what Noam Chomsky wrote. He said, the efforts to belittle the innovation of a 14-year-old child should lead to reflection on the larger story of how power is gained, maintained, and expanded, and the need to encourage, not undermine, the capacity for creative inquiry that are widely shared and could flourish if recognized and given the support they deserve. They suggest an effort to dismiss the fact that innovation can take place by anyone in any place and any time, and they highlight the need to ensure that innovation must not be monopolized by those with power power which, incidentally, is substantially a public gift. MIT would not exist here without tax dollars of everyday hardworking people, like those people in Newark, New Jersey. And then Arvind Gupta, who had, you know, headed, who's head of the Digital India Foundation, said, Shiva Idri is a father of email. For far too long, we've all been led to believe that communication's greatest innovations 
came out of defense research inspired by the needs of war. Email was created in a place of light and cooperation, and it is important for people across the world to understand and appreciate this. Why does academic credit matter? Because the journey matters, the motivation matters, and history matters to generations of inventors, dreamers, and entrepreneurs deserve to know the truth. Big change happens in small places when opportunity meets people who are driven to find answers. That's how email as we know it came to be. And then finally, Michael Podlipsky, who was around all these numbnuts called the ARPANET. And he wrote a great essay call and they argued all night how all these guys would get together to try to just get credit. And if you haven't read the essay, go read it because he wrote 20 of the RFCs. He says, the Raytheon BBN guys who always seem to get to write the histories and hence always seem to have claimed to have invented everything. Enormous bias can be introduced in, into all history books, much less techno history ones based on whom the authors talk or refer to first and whom they find agreeable, of course. All right, any questions on who invented email? Yes. I'm interested about all those people wow. uh, basically uh, helping you before the, the lawsuits, except for Trump. I didn't feel about that. I don't know what you're trying to say. So basically, this video, you were telling us that trust me was the only one speaking. Oh yeah. All the other people that now are they came right. after. Yeah. So how did you about that? Is it, well, the thing is, once you win a lawsuit, you know, it's like lemmings, guys. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. What is a true intellectual? A true intellectual says the right thing at the right time, yeah. not when it's opportune. Right. That is what academia was supposed to be, and it's completely degenerated. You went into academia to be bold, to be to be radical. That's not what it is anymore. That's why there's not any great innovations coming out. Let's be honest. Go read Peter Thiel's book from zero to one. All the AI stuff that we have today existed, I'm sorry, in the 1960s. It's not anything new. So let me finish with it. I think we're going, right? You guys okay? Can I wrap up with a couple of things? So my point is you cannot be a great scientist or great engineer without also being an activist. Now, when I was walking down MIT in the middle of this controversy, I don't know if you saw this. It said, buy fresh, buy GMO. Front page MIT Technology Review in 2014. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, they were making fun of the buy fresh, buy local. And so the issue was at that time, there was a raving thing, pro-GMO, non-GMO. And, you know, what's the difference, right? Between something that's non-GMO and GMO. It turns out, like, what's the difference between these two, right? It turns out that in 1976, there was a ruling passed called substantial equivalence which was done for medical devices, that if you made a stethoscope and you later changed just a little piece of it, it used to take seven years to get a medical device through the FDA. So su substantial equivalence that if you just made a small change, then you don't have to go through that whole seven year, pro like if you change the color of the stethoscope from black to white, right? For example, as long as um, the manufacturer could say, hey, here are the criteria and these criteria are substantially equivalent. Does that make sense? So anyway, when GMOs came, they used the same view. So when you compared a GMO tomato with a non-GMO tomato, what is different? All that had to happen was the guy who creates the non-GMO tomato just has to say, I'm gonna look at the following criteria, color, amount of water, and you know squishiness, something like that. And as long as you, you create whatever criteria you want, you could say they're equivalent. But the issue is biochemically, how are they equivalent? So here's what I wanna 
emphasize you're here. I created Cytosol. I started using this technology in some ways for politics. So we looked at every paper written in the world on C1 metabolism, which is the way plants metabolize carbon. And then we went through this process and we figured out the system of how genetic modification affects these three pathways, which affect C1 metabolism. And we ended up writing six papers very uh, systematically on C1 metabolism, oxidative stress, and genetic modification. We ran all this through our engine and we discovered was GMO actually accumulates in formal, uh, um, in, in, sorry, in genetically engineered products like soy, GM, uh, formaldehyde actually accumulates. And the reason is, if you look at this pathway over here, in normal plants, things undergo methionine biosynthesis. Clean it up, okay, which is an antioxidant. But when you genetically engineered these plants, and we were looking at soy, you actually put this plant into oxidative stress into a different mode, allostasis, and the plant actually uses up its um, glutathione and it'll produce formaldehyde. So we published this. When we published this, we were attacked, obviously, by the European Commission. We're all paid off by the guys at Cornell, because everyone says genetically engineered foods are great, right? And then they said, oh, this is just a mathematical model. Don't believe it. You know, nothing to see. Move along. Um, anyway, we published a series of papers. And finally, we published this paper, which says we were very fortunate a group in Leeds in London had actually grown the soy plant, you know, in a greenhouse. We had the mechanisms of why that plant would have less glutathione. And lo and behold, our numbers match. If you can see here, in vivo means what they did, right? Everyone see that? In vivo means in the greenhouse. So you're seeing they had 268% less glutathione. RRS is Roundup Ready Soy. Organic is the organic plant. It's another way of looking at it. So our studies showed the same, but we were able to show the mechanisms. We never heard from them after this. No one in Cornell, anyone's taking this up, but we did the right thing, all right? And by the way, food industry, it turns out enlisted a lot of academics that starts coming out of the New York Times for lobbying. And this is what's happening. Academics are the most spineless fucking people on the planet. They really are. And a lot of them are at MIT. A lot of them are at Stanford, a lot of them at Harvard. So academia has become highly politicized. It's really unfortunate. And so I want to thank Adam. I mean, what he's doing here is quite extraordinary. Because if you're truly a scientist, you're going to go after and ask all sorts of wild questions. And out of that, you apply the scientific method and you find out what's real. How Monsanto mobilized academics. This is like mainstream media is now talking about this. Okay. So let me finish up with this. In September of 2019, you know, I had put out this tweet. I said, I will give my $10 million building in Cambridge to anyone who can show me a risk assessment model for vaccine safety, allowing any, allowing any pat, uh, parent to decide based on their kids' uh, particular biology. Basically, there is no vaccine safety models. And we ran a big conference in our building. 600 people showed up and we actually went through this. Now, why can I talk about this? Because I'm considered one of the leading guys on the immune system. In 2019, the National Science Foundation invited me to give their prestige lecture. And you can look it up. And my thesis, if you read the chapter of my PhD thesis, a good piece of it is on the interferon system. Now, this is the old model of the immune system from 1915, okay? 
And it basically says a pathogen comes in to your innate immune system, you know, your nose, your throat, all that kind of stuff, if you know what the innate immune system is. And after a little while, about 72 hours, your adaptive immune system kicks in and it creates antibodies, okay? And for some, by the way, that red thing means if you give a vaccine, you're gonna get the antibody, okay? Now that entire, that, that's a, that two box model is from 1915. And using that two box model of immune system, in 1962, the 1962 Kennedy Vaccination Act was passed. And it created all these government agencies which basically said the government has a right into your body. That's what it basically did. And between 1962 to 1986, there were hundreds to thousands of vaccine injuries being reported. Parents were suing pharmaceutical companies. Ted Kennedy, the other Kennedy here who killed a woman and got away with it in Chappaquiddick, he was the one who sponsored the bill in Congress, co-sponsored the bill to protect all the pharma companies. It's called the Vaccine in Injury Program. So you cannot sue pharmaceutical companies. I can sue Toyota if my wheels fall off my car. I can sue Delta, right? If the plane doesn't, but I cannot sue a pharmaceutical company. That's a fucking Kennedy. Yes. And we must use these curse words at these people. Please use them because that's what these people did. And now you have Booby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, saying he wants safe vaccines. Well, all he wants, and he, and he, he rails against these corrupt organizations, but somehow he's gonna get them to create safe vaccines. And this guy, Steve Kirsch, who's speaking tomorrow, well, next week, same nonsense. He was nowhere to be found in 2020, by the way, okay? Suddenly shows up out of nowhere and it supports Kennedy. So what, my thesis showed is that there's an interferon system. When you get hit, if I sneeze on John, not only does all the neutrophils, everything in his innate system kick in, but the interferon system kicks in, which turns on thousands of genes. And then, and, but then it gets even, and by the way, you can, if you don't want to go read my thesis, we've modeled all that and shown that. But one of the biggest thing that recently came out is that your immune system affects all of these subsystems. And the latest work says that I mean, this came out of nature saying, or cell, saying it's time that we relook at the 1915 model of the immune system. And what really turns out is this is really what I published. This is really a much more holistic model of the immune system. It's far more complicated. You have your gut microbiome, you have the virome, right? You have the vagus nerve. And so for a doctor to say that everyone should be getting the same protocol is nonsense. Everyone is unique. So it has to be about the right medicine for the right person at the right time. This is why it came out against the vaccine mandates, right? So um, no one took me up on this, by the way. Um, and then, um, you know, when the quote unquote pandemic started, I was the first one to put this out in March of 2020. I said it as an MIT PhD in biological engineering who studies and does research nearly every day on the immune system, the coronavirus fear mongering by the deep state will go down in history as one of the biggest frauds to manipulate economies, suppress dissent, and push mandated medicine. It's exactly what happened. That was in 2020. Okay. I wrote to Trump. I said, do not lock down the country. I said, if you want to do the right thing, I said, uh, by the way, you can't even get to that link anymore, the letter I wrote to him. Okay. The letter basically said, look, Use personalized medicine. Take the people who truly, you know, have pre-existing conditions. Fine, quarantine them. The rest of the people, you can give them vitamin D, 
quercetin, zinc, iodine, boosts up their immune systems. So this is not about vax or not vaccines. That's not the discussion here. That's what the reductionist model is. The real issue is are we focused on resilience? If you know anything about systems, it's all about resilience, resilience, re resilience, right? S stress inoculation. Well, Trump didn't listen to this because he was funded by all the same guys, okay? He did Operation Warp Speed, talked a good game. We gave him an entire protocol of what to do. So again, this is me as a scientist, as an engineer, saying the right thing at the right time. We ran the Fire Fauci campaign, okay? We raised about 120,000 signatures. This guy's a criminal. Total freaking criminal. Hmm. We did it at the right time in March of 2020. Not a year and a half later, Booby effing Kennedy and Steve Kerr start writing books, making money off of it. You see, these are opportunists who don't do what needs to be done at the right time. And you have to be careful of these people. So we ran this and we raised all these signatures. And then we ran, and, and I led some of the biggest anti-lockdown rallies. And let me finish on this last thing because it's about free speech. Many of you know I ran for office against a woman called Elizabeth Warren. Our slogan was only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. Great slogan, okay? <laughs> we had a big bus in Cambridge on the slogan. Um, the, the, um, the city of Cambridge sent me a letter saying that I should take down the banner off of our bus because we had a picture of me and a picture of her. Great ad slogan. We forced her to take that DNA test, by the way. Um, that She's a racist. What is racism? Racism is using race for your own personal advantage. And that's what she did. Racism is not calling me the N-word, Frank. That's just ignorance, in my view. Okay? You can do that. But racism is exploiting race for one's financial advan advancement. And that's what she did. So we ran that and then we, and then we ran in 2020. By all accord, we won that election. And when we challenged that election, which the law allows, you'll, for 22 months, you're allowed to challenge an election. We had you know, 3,000 volunteers on the ground, 25,000 bumper stickers. You couldn't leave Massachusetts without seeing Dr. Shiva sign. September 2020, by the way, the Republicans are the ones who interfered in our election, not the Democrats. And when we went to the Secretary of State, we said, look, we want the ballot images because I win in the hand counted paper ballot uh, counting county called Franklin County by 10 points. And every other county to a, to, a, to a guy who didn't even campaign, he had maybe one lawn sign up. We lose 60, 40, 60, 40, 60, 40, 60, 40 in every other county where they use machines. And then I study the manuals of the machines. I had to put my hat on as an engineer. I found out that the voting machines have a feature called the weighted race feature. Everyone heard of this? Hmm. It means if Adam gets a thousand votes and he's running against John gets a thousand votes, I can multiply John's votes by two and his by 0.5. <laughs> Why was this created? Why is it in voting machines? Because these voting machines were also used in housing co-ops, right? Where maybe he owns two, a thousand square feet of space and you own 500, so you get two to one but why is it in US voting machines? So I did the stochastic analysis, did the model and showed it was impossible of the voting patterns. So when I went to the secretary of state and said, I want the ballot images, what are those? When a paper ballot goes into a physical voting machine, it creates an image. And by law, by 52 USC 20701, you're supposed to preserve those ballot images for 22 months. They said they deleted them. They basically said, F off. We don't have to give them to you. 
So I tweeted that out on Twitter. I said, the Secretary of State has deleted 1.5 million ballot images. I get thrown off Twitter. No lawyer wanted, and, and I'm still in the middle of my US Senate campaign. This is America, by the way. We're running a write-in campaign. What we discover, I had to go sue in courtroom testimony. We find out that the government of the United States after CISA was created on November 16, 2018, by Trump, by the way, the so-called Make America Great Trump. He's the one who signed into law CISA, which allows a government to literally communicate with social media companies and tell them what to do. And my lawsuit uncovered that. And if you remember, 1791 is when we said, Congress shall pass no law to bridge the freedom of speech. What happened was on November 16, 2018, Trump creates CISA, Cybersecurity Information Security Act, which created this backend door, backdoor into Twitter, Facebook, everything. And so when I was exposing the ballot images being destroyed, it was a government which contacted Twitter, which is the grossest violation of free speech, right? Private companies, if I'm a private company, I can tell John, shut the fuck up, right? But the government is not allowed to do that through a private actor. And that's what Trump did. Every senator, every House of Representatives voted for CISA. So on November 16th, we passed a law that abridged freedom of speech. And I discovered in my lawsuit, the entire infrastructure, that woman on top who I critiqued for deleting ballot images, turns out she's over there on CISA's board. There's an entire infrastructure that is set up now in the United States that allows government to silence domestic U.S. citizens. And that, so what happens is the government up there on top has this infrastructure, which is a clearinghouse. They contact to silence a U.S. Senate candidate. And you know who funded that? Pierre Omidyar. So they're laundering censorship through, through a nonprofit. So we discovered that. We exposed it. All right. And if you want to know more, go to winbackfreedom.com. Our whole lawsuit's up there. We're going after CISA and DHS now. So let me end, end this. And I'll give you sort of my thesis on what is really discrimination, racism, et cetera. You know, to me, racism is bucketing people. Um, you know, there's blonde jokes, right? Blondes are supposed to behave like this. They must be quote unquote dumb, right? Or if you're black, you like to eat watermelon or you like to, you know, be like this. Or if you're Chinese, you must like to do Kung Fu, right? Um, or if you're white, you must be racist, okay? Or if you're an Indian, you must own a 7-Eleven and you must like to meditate all day. These are built by Hollywood, guys. And, and, and you like to shake your head and you like to get beaten. And um, if you, you know, you have to be a good Indian. Or if you're a nerd, you got to look like this, right? And the reality is that what a friend of mine said, you know, Shiva, what really bothered them about you was you were unwilling to be a good Indian. Very important thing. Those Indians think about what I'm saying. India fundamentally at a deep level never got independence. It didn't. Gandhi sold out India. That's what actually happened in telling people to get beaten up. I'm sorry. I don't believe that. So what happened in India was the British left India. As I said, white men with crowns left. And brown men with white hats took over. That's why India has this deep corruption. Please wait. Okay. So this is what's actually going on. You see, when you're at MIT, okay, you're a nerd. Now you can be an inventor. And by the way, when my first year at MIT, I'd see something fascinating. I'd see these normal kids be absolutely fine. And within six months, they get really nasally accents and start twitching a little bit. 
I'm being serious. You know what I'm talking about? Like now you're in, because Hal Abelson or one of the professors, like you have to have these little mannerisms. It's like, you know, like the inside club thing. So the real segregation discrimination is putting people into these little boxes. And when you step out of them, you will be hammered. So as long as I was a good Indian guy doing all the right things, starting companies, I was great. But when I said email was created before I came to MIT, that bugs a lot of people. That doesn't fit the narrative. And I was unwilling to let go. How many symbols do you have of Indians fighting back? You don't. Okay, so that's, and by the way, if you look at what's going on in the United States right now, 40% of Americans don't have 400 bucks in the bank for an emergency expense. $1,000 emergency, right? Um, and during the pandemic, 600 billionaires increased their wealth by $2.3 trillion. So we have to start looking at the class issue here. And the median net worth right here in Boston of a black person, you read it, is only eight bucks. Did you know that? That's by the Federal Reserve. So in the midst of all this diversity, all these professors at MIT talking about diversity, right in Boston, the net worth of a black person is eight bucks. That of a white counterpart is $270,000. So how is all this diversity getting making the world better? It isn't. It's a lot of talk. So you have this talk over here on MIT's mission statement, but over here, who funds all the big universities? The big VCs, the big private equity guys. And this is why at Harvard, they said from the river to the sea, now was no longer condemned. Condemning speech in a public university? Are you fucking serious? But the reality what's going on is there's a massive divide between rich and poor. The 0.00001% are consolidating power like ever before. And this is why they need to push the narrative that all great stuff come from them. It's a caste system we have. And that's what's really going on. And you can see right here, and by the way, you know, it was before black people were getting low wages, but poor whites and poor Hispanics are coming down to the same level. People print money all day right now. Obama printed money, Trump printed money, Biden's printing money. The entire economy is running on fumes. It's not real. It's not based on real innovation. So that's where we're headed. And so let me uh, finish the last piece. John Medlar's here. In August of 2017, John and I, we organized a free speech rally in the Boston Common. Right, John? And we invited everyone, left wing, right wing, communists, Green Party, everyone. The week before that, Charlottesville had taken place. Remember that? which was whatever happened. But the mayor of Boston and the governor of Massachusetts branded our rally as a white supremacist rally. They said I was a Nazi, that I was a white supremacist. Okay, why? Because the governor of Massachusetts was running against a Hispanic guy and Marty Walsh, who's a freaking racist, was running against a black guy. So they wanted to act like they're fighting for black and Hispanic people. They branded our event as a Nazi event. The South, the South Asian Indian said, I'm a Nazi. Okay? And 40,000 people showed up against us. Look at that. 40,000 people. Michelle was on the stage, and we were getting we were about to get killed. 
This is in Boston, supposedly intelligent fucking people. How does this happen? And you know what's on the stage? This people and, and the only writer, Jeff Jacoby, said free speech minus he said free speech minus free speech rally minus free speech. And that was what was on the stage. We're holding up things saying black lives do matter. No to GMOs in South Mount Santo. People of all color. In fact, one of the guys that showed up was an African-American food service worker I knew from 40 years ago at MIT. So how does this happen? How does this get branded as a Nazi event and 40,000 people show up in Boston with all these universities? Can you answer that to me? Can anyone answer that? You can't, can you? The Nazis call their opposition Nazis. Yeah, thank you. But the point is, how many universities do you have in the one mile radius? Harvard, MIT, Leslie, BU, Boston College, go down the list. And so all these people thought we were Nazis because two people said that we were? All these people think I didn't invent email because what? One fucking historian says it? That's what took place. So I've been in the heat of struggle, guys. I write software, I do medical research, but I fight because I never forgot where I came from and neither should you. You were someplace before you came to MIT and MIT does not define you because if you let them do that, you're a fucking slave. And when we put this up, the city of Cambridge, as I said, said, please take down the bus. We fought back at them and we won that lawsuit because they want you to walk away, right? We sued and we won, we, we won, okay? And let me wrap up with this. This is what is happening. All these academics, all these celebrities, all these intellectuals, this is what they've created for America right now. You see that curve? That is a lifespan curve, the life expectancy of what's happening. And what do you see here? This from 1980, the life expectancy of the United States is going down. Now, I don't care. You can't talk your way out of this. Over the last, and by the start, started with policies. So that curve, and by the way, the, the rest of the world is going con, you know, downward too. So the policies of those in power is undeniable. It's not the vaccines. It's a whole bunch of policies. It's the stress. It's all these things. It's stress on people. Sorry, it's, it's healthcare. It's destroying immune systems. People can't get proper food. I mean, you guys eat shit in the cafeteria. I'm sorry. Just garbage. You pay a lot of money and you're eating crap, right? People don't know how to think systems-wise. People can't really solve problems. You have a, a corrupt governance system and people don't even know how to save money. So look at what's going on. That line, behind that line, is a bunch of policy systems. And we need a systems overhaul. So I've been an activist all my life. And what we've created is we've created a movement now. And by the way, if you keep doing this, like Lucy, you think you're voting for a doofus like Kennedy or doofus like Trump, or then they had to find a brown guy, Vivek the snake, I call him. Okay, made up this character, a total fool. It's a car salesman. He literally took $5 million, bought a, a useless drug that failed four clinical trials, had his mother redo the data, throw out all the trials that didn't work, and then rebranded it as a proven drug. 
took it public, crashed the stock 99%. How the fuck are these people even getting on mainstream media? And me with four degrees, we're made invisible. But you know what? They have a problem because we've created a movement. So the latest innovation I've done is Truth, Freedom, Health. It combines system science with activism, and we're teaching people how to build a bottoms-up movement. Because just like you want to build an airplane, there's a physics. You want to build a wireless system, you have to understand Maxwell's equations. And I've uncovered those systems principles. And the world is not going to come from left or right. It's not going to come from academics. It's going to come from a movement. So if you want to go learn, go to truthfreedomhelp.com. And what we recognize is that more information is not solving the problem. We have more people who are depressed. Two and a half billion people are now obese, going to four billion. Information is not improving our lives because information is going through the lens of ignorance. A bunch of moronic professors at MIT promoting this climate change nonsense. A bunch of people promoting, you know, one size fits all medicine because they're getting paid for it. There's $2 billion. You put climate change in cockroaches, you will get funded. You will. No one's looking at the physics. And, the, and by the way, the real people are people like the Saad Guru guy, Tucker Carlson. These people act like they're fighting for you. But these people are actually part of the system. They just say enough to get you entertained. They act anti-establishment, but they're not. Yeah, he's a creep. And the only way out of this is knowledge. Jay Forrester, who's a professor at MIT, he wanted to teach system science to young kindergartners. And MIT was creating a group called the Engineering Systems Division, which is going to be a separate group beyond all the silo groups. And guess what? All the individual silos attacked them and they destroyed them. MIT's not in a good shape, guys. You had fucking Raphael Reif, who took money from Epstein after he was convicted. I think I was the only one who said he should be fired. Where's the outrage at, at that? Let me finish by this. What's an entrepreneur? Some people think, you know, it comes, everything comes from French, okay? Um, that word is entrepreneur, right? Actually, there's another word, an ancient, ancient, you know, Sanskrit says anta prerana. And it's, what it means is driven by insight. You are what your deep, you are what your deep driving desire as your desire is, so is your will. As your will is, so, your, so is your deed. As your deed is, so is your destiny. That's what an entrepreneur is. An entrepreneur's fight. We're not just here nerding away, starting a fucking company and listening to these academics who are spineless. We have to fight evil. Because when you look at that curve of life expectancy, your children are going to live shorter than you. Think about that. That's a systems problem. And we need a systems overhaul. And that's why I decided to run for president, because it's to create a movement and it's to let people know, why aren't engineers running? It's only for lawyers and people come out of Harvard. People have golden plated toilets and they name Kennedy and billion dollar trust funds. What about all you guys? Are the nerds just supposed to work for the exploiters? Thank you. Let me just point over the room. Yeah. No, keep that on you. I have other cameras. Oh, you do? Okay. Sorry, John. Is that right? Well, folks, thank you very much for attending. Dr. Shiwa was very entertaining today.
Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but if you do have questions or things you'd like to say, please come up front to address Dr. Shiva. Thank you. We'll see you next week. All right, guys. Nice meeting you. Take care. Yeah, Shanti. Any questions? I mean, we have time, right? Well, the official time's run out, but if you want to stay, go ahead. Yeah, we don't follow the rules. Any time? Gandhi was put in India from South Africa by the British to create Pakistan. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, that's one, one thesis. Yep. All right. Any other questions? Yep. Anybody like to finish? One second, Shanti. What do you intend to do about the Federal Reserve? Well, look, every the, the Federal Reserve should not exist, okay? Um, but besides saying, you know, obviously, I can make a bombastic, we should get rid of it. The issue is how, okay? All these other people posture to get rid of it. The only way to get rid of it is to build a bottoms up movement. And if anyone wants to know what that is, go to truthfreedomhealth.com and support, you know, get involved. We have a whole course we've created, a whole community. The other thing is everyone here before you leave, buy a bumper sticker, five bucks, and put it on the back windshield of your car, okay? 100,000 people see it per day. You want to help this movement? Let's get a million of those bumper stickers out because it's time that this country had people actually know how to solve problems and actually care. Not a bunch of people come from top down. All these people do. They'll say whatever you want to hear. Oh, I'm going to get rid of the Fed. Oh, how are you going to do it? Uh, well, when I get into office, how are you going to do it? We're talking about monumental changes. That's only going to happen through a massive bottoms up revolutionary movement. And that's what we need to create. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Thank you. You got it, Tom? All right. Thanks, everyone out there in, in social media world.